Good morning, church. It's time to begin. We welcome you today in the name of Jesus Christ uh, to this abnormal worship service we undoubtedly will have here in the next hour or so, but we thank you so much for being here. Uh, I need to make a few comments before we officially begin. Um, first, just some administrative logistical things on, on how things are going to go today. Uh, on the way in, uh, I trust you picked up your little single-serve packet of communion. Uh, if you didn't, they're in the back right now, and feel free to get up right, right as we speak and go get one if you don't already have one. But it's just a single-serve, prepackaged communion thing. Uh, when the time comes, in our you know, typical time for communion during the service, uh, one of our elders, Craig, will come down and We'll pray for communion, and we ask that you just hold off on opening your communion until Craig finishes his prayer for the communion. And once he finishes his prayer, uh, we'll have a short time where you can open your communion and take it and meditate uh, and reflect. Uh, I will ask everybody, just be careful when you're you know, opening that thing. There's grape juice on the inside, and you're pulling it open, so you, know, you might spill grape juice on your pants if you're not, not careful. Uh, but we're going to take that uh, on our own where we're seated, and not pass around any plates or anything like that today. Uh, consequently, the offering uh, you can give to the church if you would still like to give on your way out. We'll have gentlemen stationed at the exits on your way out. You can drop your offering instead of us passing an offering plate. Okay? Uh, do need to tell everyone that uh, until April 1st at least, we have canceled uh, all non-Sunday morning activities at the church. Uh, this includes Sunday evening uh, worship, Sunday, uh, Wednesday evening Bible study. Uh, this includes choir practice uh, on Sunday evenings uh, and any other uh, Bible studies or fellowship times that might have otherwise been scheduled. The elders and I will continue to meet regularly uh, as this thing changes. For you know, it, it feels honestly a lot different today than it did even uh, six or seven days ago. And so we'll continue to meet and continue to change what we're recommending and doing as needed. So um, one of the best places to get updated on that is our Facebook page. Uh, we'll also be sending out emails and uh, putting it on things like the radio and ColumbiaMagazine.com and whatnot. But a few comments on this. Uh, I did not change my sermon today, so my sermon today is on what it would have been, no matter what would have happened. But I do think this whole situation warrants just a few comments, and I'd like to give them to you right now. Number one, remember this. God is in control. All right? God is in control through all of this. This did not take him by surprise. He knew about this before the foundations of the earth. He knows exactly when it will end and how it will end. And he cares for each one of his children. He cares for each one of his children. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount about God's care for animals and God's care for even the flowers of the field. And then he says, are you not much more valuable than they? God cares for us. Know this too. Sitting here this morning, you are no more vulnerable than you were three weeks ago. None of us are. We are no more vulnerable today than we were three weeks ago. We've just been reminded of our vulnerability as human beings. God is showing us who is really in control. And it's not us. It's not us. Now, this may end up being a gracious act of benevolence from God, this whole thing, because it reminds us that we are weak. It reminds us of the truth that we are weak and that we must depend on Him. 
It reminds us that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. I mean, forget about the, the coronavirus. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, even when there is not a disease pandemic. And that is a gracious gift of God to remind us of that and to remind everyone that now, today, is the time of repentance. Today is the time to turn to the Lord. What is the worst that could happen in all of this? Well, if you're in Christ, the worst that could happen is that you will see Him face to face. And that you, see, you will see those loved ones who have already passed, who are in Christ. But, even though we do not believe it will get that bad, as far as we can tell, it reminds us of Jesus' comment on the second greatest commandment which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so all of the measures that we will be taking as a church and all of the measures that you see people taking out there are, I believe, an outworking of that second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. I am not personally worried about getting this myself, but what I am concerned about is spreading it to someone else, right? If I get it, whatever, right? I, I'm secure in Christ. I know what, what, what's going to happen in my future, but I don't want to spread it to other people. And so let's love our neighbor in how we act during this whole thing. All right? Now here in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to greet everyone with a handshake and a holy kiss and whatnot. But I will ask you to stand for our scripture reading and then afterwards to remain standing for our first worship song. So will you stand with me right now and we will begin our worship service by turning to God in scripture. The word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Each week here at Columbia Christian, we have what's known as a pastoral prayer. And I could not think of anything better to pray for this week than what's going on in our country and in our world. Uh, ask you to be in prayer for this as God is the one who controls all things, and God is the one who can end this with but a thought. Uh, but I will also ask that you pray with me now as we pray for uh, this spread of sickness, this pandemic, and uh, for all the lives that it will affect. Our great and almighty God and our loving Father, God, we come before you with humble hearts, seeking your guidance and your grace and your power and your mercy. God, we acknowledge our dependence on you this morning. We acknowledge our dependence on you. Even though we are prone to forget it, every second of every day we are dependent on you. You are the only being who is not dependent at all. And yet everything that you have created is and God, in that light, we repent of our self-reliance and our pride. This whole thing has reminded us of how 
self-reliant we can be, how prideful we can be, how much we think that we are impervious because of what we have, because of our technological advancements, how smart we are, but we are not. And so we repent of that to you this morning. We pray that you would destroy this virus, for you have the power to do so. God, we, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. You are powerful and can do anything you wish with your creation. And so we ask that you would destroy this and stop this in its tracks. We pray for the elderly and the most vulnerable in our society. And we pray that you would protect them. And we pray that you would comfort them and give them peace. We pray for the workers who cannot work from home. We pray for our doctors and our nurses and those in the healthcare field. We pray for our municipal workers. We pray for those in retail situations who do not get off from their jobs, especially in places where we need those places to be open, like groceries and the like. We pray for them. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that you would give them physical immunity. And we thank you so much for their work. God, we pray for scientists and disease specialists who are working around the clock right now. And we pray that through the the gifts that you have given them and wisdom and intellect and all the tools that you have blessed us with here in the year 2020, that you would allow them to, to find a vaccine for this and create what is needed to stop this. God, we pray for our government leaders as no doubt they are working around the clock and they are experiencing such a heavy burden on their shoulders, being second-guessed at every single turn. We pray for uh, Pam, our mayor. We pray for Governor Bashir. We pray for President Trump. And we pray for all of the decisions that they have to make. We pray that you would bless them with wisdom and strength and perseverance. We pray for those families whose lives will change financially because of these next few weeks, because of school being out because of uh, recommendations for social distancing and the like. And we pray that you would help those families. We pray that you would give them what they need. We pray that you would protect them from the financial hardships that this could cause. In your providence, we know you can do all things, and we pray that you would do those. Finally, God, we pray that in your mercy and in your grace that this would cause people to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. We pray that this would remind us that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And I pray that many would come to Jesus. I pray that many would come to Jesus, for indeed this, no doubt, is a tool in your hand that you can use for good. We pray that you would. We ask all these things in the, the great and awesome name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This morning, God's word to us comes from Numbers chapter 12. I ask that you turn with me there, Numbers chapter 12. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible's laid out, Numbers is the fourth book in your entire Bible. So you start from the beginning, flip just a little bit forward, you'll come to the book of Numbers chapter 12, is where we'll be here in just a moment. Today's message is entitled, Family Drama. If you remember, when we first started the book of Numbers, we talked about how the book of Numbers is such a neglected book. How many of us have actually read straight through the book of Numbers, and how many of us turn to the book of Numbers for help? 
in our everyday lives, and yet there is so much application, so much relevant application within the book of Numbers for our lives as we live them. And one of the the primary ways is that we see ourselves in the nation of Israel. We see ourselves in the people throughout the book of Numbers. Last week we saw ourselves in the nation of Israel and how they complained and grumbled against God. Today we will see ourselves in the leaders, the actual leaders of the people of Israel as they go through family drama. Have you ever experienced this in your own life? Have you ever experienced drama in your family? Kids are off of school for the next four weeks, including spring break. You think there's going to be some family drama? It's, it's something that we understand because it's part of the human condition. And Numbers speaks directly to it this morning. So let's look at our text, Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 16 verses long, so follow along with me. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, the word of the Lord. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now, it needs to be mentioned right off the bat, why is this family drama? Well, it's because Aaron is Moses' brother. All right? Aaron here in our story is Moses' brother, and Miriam is Moses' sister. They are siblings. You ever had drama with your siblings before? Family drama. Now, before I get into the the general points, I need to tell you this. 
before this whole thing ever blew up in our culture, this whole coronavirus pandemic thing, a long time ago, like, you know, months ago, this sermon text was chosen for this day. And it just so happens we're coming up on a text today of a quarantine, of a sickness, right? And how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, just a couple comments and preface. Number one, this text is not meant to suggest that anything that is happening in our world today is the result of anyone's personal sins, right? Miriam's sickness and Miriam's quarantine right here does have everything to do with her personal sin in that time. But this text itself does not suggest anything of that to today's situation. Does that make sense? And so this is something that was planned a long time ago for me to preach this sermon today. But it is telling in the sovereignty and the providence of God how often does He do things like that. There's a a church that uh, I've been a lot influenced by in Washington, D.C., who sets their entire year of sermons and sermon texts and sermon titles before the year begins. And in 2001, the sermon that had been set at the beginning of the year for September, the Sunday after September 11th, was, Is God Good? And the text was right up the alley of what was happening. The Lord in His providence does these things, doesn't He? He knows what's going to happen. He's known from all eternity. But I want you to see the drama within this family, which is the main reason we're looking at this text today. The drama within the family. How many of us have experienced this? Moses is going through family drama here in chapter 12. Now first, I want you to see that there's racism in this family. There's racism in this family. Look back at chapter 12, verse 1 again. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Why? Because of the Cushite woman that he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. This is the first source of family drama here. Aaron and Miriam don't like Moses' wife. Now, how often does marriage stir up issues in our families? We have this family unit that's been the same for so long, so many years, and all of a sudden we're bringing someone else into this group, an outsider, so to speak. Now, Some of us, myself included, some of us have been blessed to have in-laws that have welcomed us into their families with open arms and made it easy, much easier than it could have been. But I know some of you, I know some of you have felt like an outsider at Thanksgivings and Christmases. The stuff is hard, isn't it? The stuff is sensitive. And in a, a small town area like where we live, We have families that stick together and families that all live in the same geographical area. When you bring someone else into that tight-knit group, sometimes it can cause family drama. But notice specifically what Aaron and Miriam don't like about Moses' wife. They have a problem with her race. She's not an Israelite. She's a Cushite. In the Hebrew, this is the same word translated as Ethiopian in Jeremiah chapter 13. Ethiopian. And so we're pretty certain here. Moses has married an African black woman who almost certainly has much darker skin than the people of Israel. Now the people of Israel are are not white as some of you and I would consider ourselves white, but they don't have as dark a skin 
as an Ethiopian person, right? And so, almost certainly, this wife that Moses has has darker skin than the other Israelites. And Aaron and Miriam don't like it. Now, notice God's response to Miriam specifically for her racism down in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. Leprous like snow. You see what's happening here? You see what God's doing? It's as if God is saying to Miriam, you like having light skin? You look down on other people who have darker skin than you? All right. You're proud of how light your skin is. I'll make it white as snow. And God gives Miriam leprosy. Now, it's important to note here, in Scripture, in Scripture, there's two things that we have to remember about racism. Number one, racism due to the color of someone's skin makes no sense as you read through Scripture. The Bible, and the Gospel specifically, severs racism at its root. Why? Well, two main reasons. Number one, every single person that you've ever met descends from the same two people. Adam and Eve. We all come from the same two people. doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, everyone can trace their lineage back to the same two people. And so it makes absolutely no sense to value one race over another or to devalue someone based on the color of their skin. But not only do we go back to creation, but we go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation where we see that Jesus died and poured out His blood for people from every tribe and every language and every nation. He poured out His blood for people with different skin color than you. If you have a problem with racial diversity, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Heaven will be the most diverse place the universe has ever seen. God loves it. God values it. God created it. And so we have no right to devalue anyone based on the color of their skin. But second, we need to understand that Scripture consistently teaches that interracial marriage is never condemned. But what is condemned in the Bible is interreligious marriage. In Scripture, interracial marriage is never condemned. What is condemned is interreligious marriage. I used to have a co-worker that tried to say that interracial marriage was sinful because of what the Bible had to say. Specifically, he would use texts like Ezra 9. And we don't have to, time to study Ezra 9 this morning in depth, but Ezra 9 is a clear case of God condemning interreligious marriage. If you marry someone who does not worship the God of the Bible, they will lead your heart away from Him. It doesn't matter what the color of their skin. If you marry someone who does not worship the God of the Bible, does not worship Jesus Christ, they'll lead your heart away from Him. It has nothing to do with race or skin color. And so we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That very first sentence there said, Do not be unequally yoked. With unbelievers. Now, a yoke is referring to a wooden contraption that you'd put around two oxen, binding them together so that they could pull the plow. 
It's a farming equipment term. Okay? And so this is why we use this text to refer to marriage. Because just like you put something around two oxen and bind them together, marriage is binding us together with another human being. And so it makes no sense if God is the most important thing in your life, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, to yoke yourself together like that with someone who doesn't share that most fundamental, most important priority. It's not interracial marriage, it's interreligious marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul says, A widow who has lost her husband may remarry, but she must marry in the Lord. So it's consistent throughout the Bible. Interracial marriage is never condemned, it's interreligious marriage. And so this is the first piece of family drama that we come upon here is racism in the family. But we also see, and this goes a little bit deeper here, jealousy in the family. There's jealousy in this family. Notice what Miriam and Aaron said in verse 2. They said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also? Here's the heart of the matter. Aaron and Miriam are jealous of the position that God has given to Moses. Last week we saw the people grumbling and complaining because they compared their present situation with what they imagined was a wonderful past. What they imagined was a wonderful past. They were comparing present to past. But now Aaron and Miriam grumble because they are comparing themselves with someone else. And brothers and sisters... Satan loves it when you compare yourself to other people. Satan loves it when you compare yourself with other people. We have an entire culture built on this, do we not? An entire culture. You see someone else's success, or their looks, or their influence, or their comfort, or their possessions, and you want what they have. And we're all prone to it. Don't you dare sit there and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like those people who are prone to jealousy. Right? Don't be the Pharisee in Jesus' story who says, I'm glad I'm not like other men. Right? You've got to be vigilant not to listen to sermons like that, because that's our, our flesh crying out. It's our nature to do this. But we are all prone to this. Advertisements know how to get us, do they not? Right? We see something. It's different for everybody, but you see something, and you're like, oh, that would be nice. What about social media? You see people's lives on social media, and it seems like they've just got everything all together, of course, we know all, all they're putting on there is their, their highlights, their best. But we have those moments, not just on social media, but in real life. We have those moments where we look around and we say, must be nice. You ever have one of those moments? The must be nice moments? Must be nice, right? Never forget the 10th commandment. You shall not what? Covet. You shall not covet. Now, that commandment is supremely important. But we all know, following the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is not just a matter of willpower. It's not just a matter of saying, God told me not to covet, so I'm not supposed to covet, so I'm not going to do it. No, the problem is deeper than that. The problem is the heart that covets. Sins come from the heart, so we have to attack them at the heart level. Why do I covet? Why do I want to covet? Where do we get the power to kill this sin of jealousy? The answer is finding contentment in Jesus. The way you kill the sin of jealousy is you seek contentment in Jesus. 
You see, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ, if you have Christ this morning, by the way, I cannot say that about the entire world, only those who are in Christ. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you have Christ this morning, you have everything. You have a treasure worth more than all the gold and the riches in the world. In Christ, you have a treasure that when a man finds it, we read in Scripture, he finds it buried in a field, he goes and sells everything he has so he can buy that field. In Christ, you have the acceptance and the favor of the greatest being in the universe. 1 John 3.1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of of God. And that is what we are. In Christ, you have an inheritance coming to you that outweighs anything the trust fund babies or rich kids will ever see on this earth. Right? An inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. A literal paradise for all eternity. In Christ. And in Christ, you have a Savior who walked the earth without a place to lay his head, who was meek and poor, yet perfectly content because of his father's care. The secret to killing off the sin of jealousy in your heart is contentment in Christ. But now also notice how Miriam and Aaron were jealous specifically of the position that God gave to Moses. They're jealous of the position that God gave to Moses. Have you ever felt this way? I know more than him. I should be the boss of this company. You ever felt like that? I shouldn't have to listen to my mom and dad. I should be able to decide for myself. Or what's so special about him? I could do that just as well as he could. You ever had those thoughts before? Now, where have we heard this before? Where have we heard this before? Well, think back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Satan says to Eve, you should decide for yourself what's good for you. Don't trust God. He knows that when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. Right? We've heard it before. Think about even before the garden. What was Satan's one sin that caused him to fall and lose his position as an exalted angel of light? Satan wanted God's authority for himself. We see this all the way back at the beginning. You see, this is not only jealousy. It's a refusal to submit to the authority that God has given. Aaron and Miriam were refusing to submit to God's appointed authority. And it's a problem that every single one of us struggles with from time to time. We all have authority figures in our life, no matter who you are. We are all people under authority, whether it's the authority of a parent, or a boss, or a teacher, or a president, or a husband, or the elders of your local church. And the real question is, what do you do when your flesh doesn't want to submit to their authority? How do you respond when your flesh doesn't want to submit to the authority of those authority figures? How do you respond when your pride wells up and says, God should have put me in charge, not them? What happens? Well, there are two paths that you can take. There's the path of Satan, 
And then there's the path of Jesus. One says, I refuse to submit. I should be in charge. And the other, well, in Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, we read this. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The path of Satan or the path of Jesus? It's your choice this morning. But finally, even though we see the drama of racism in the family, and we see the family drama of jealousy, I want to show you a different kind of drama this morning from our passage. A different kind of drama. Not family drama, but drama as we see it on the stage. You see, Moses here is acting out a play. Moses is acting out a play here in Numbers 12. God is using Moses as a prefigure of Jesus Christ. Moses is pointing us forward to Christ. How so? Well, four ways. Four specific ways that you can see in this text, Moses points us to Jesus. Number one, Moses' own family is rejecting him. Moses' own family is rejecting him. And where have we seen this before in the life of Christ? Jesus' family. Jesus' own family rejected him. In John 7, verse 5, it tells us not even his brothers believed in him. Moses is pointing us forward to Jesus. Notice also, second, Moses does not defend himself. Did you notice where it says Moses was more meek than anyone on the earth? Now this is interesting because who do we believe wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses, right? Do you think Moses is sitting there writing, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth? You know, it's a little bit hypocritical, right? So either, either God had Moses specifically write this, even though Moses probably wouldn't have wanted to, or God might have had Joshua add this in at a later time, right? But no matter what the case is, this is inspired scripture from God himself. Moses was the most humble, meek man on the face of the earth at that time. And he does not defend himself against his own family members. He does not speak up for himself. He lets God defend him. Notice this. Do not miss this. Moses lets God defend him. And our ultimate example of this is Jesus. Jesus, in humility, did not open his mouth as he was put on trial, but left the results up to God. Moses points us to Jesus. He does so in a third way. Moses interceded on behalf of Miriam and Aaron. Notice there in verse 13, Moses cries out to the Lord for Miriam. Oh God, please heal her. Now, you shouldn't miss this. Aaron was the one who was set by God as the high priest. Aaron was the one who was supposed to intercede for all of the people. And yet Aaron realizes immediately here, when Miriam gets leprosy, Aaron realizes, I can't intercede for her. I can't do this. I'm complicit. My sins make me guilty too. We need an intercessor. We need someone who is above this sin, right? And Moses prays for Miriam. And Moses is pointing us forward to Jesus, the great intercessor or mediator who has none of his own sins to take care of. 
He cries out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He cries out for the forgiveness of the people that are murdering him. He dies in our place. And this very moment, Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. And finally, number four. The fourth way that Moses points us to Christ. When Aaron and Miriam set themselves against Moses, God's anointed servant, against God's appointed mediator, they found themselves facing the judgment of God. And in the same way, those who set themselves against God's chosen mediator, against God's favored servant, His only Son, they will find themselves facing the wrath of God on Judgment Day. Let's pray. Our great God, Thank you so much for your good word to us this morning. God, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with it. Most especially, I pray that you would help us to see the glory of Jesus in the gospel here in Numbers chapter 12 and to walk away from this understanding the urgency that we have to give our lives to Jesus. God, we are vulnerable, and we do not know how much time we have on this earth. Coronavirus or not, we do not know how much time we have on this earth. God, I pray that your word would prick our hearts and our consciences, and that we would turn to you in, in faith and in repentance, and turn to your Son, Jesus. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.